Welcome all. Welcome one. This is Kevin McDonald, and you are listening to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Today is Tuesday, May 17th, 2022. Coming to you a little late with these episodes this week. Sorry about that, but we got a whole lot going on, including some folks dealing with graduations and other family obligations, but we appreciate you tuning in as always and subscribing and listening to the show. And as usual, we have a lot of great stuff to pass along to you, uh, not only from our show that airs every Friday night at 7 p.m. on New Mexico PBS, also Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. You can watch there. You can also watch on YouTube or Facebook, even Twitter and Instagram. You can find everything from the show in all of those places, but we also like to bring you some extra content as well. And that is the case here again in this episode of New Mexico and Focus podcast. And we're going to start off with what continues to be the biggest news story in New Mexico. Of course, we're talking about the wildfires. Uh, today, we got a new update almost 260,000 acres burned in the Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak Fire, Hermit's Peak Fire, which makes it the largest wildfire in New Mexico state history. And it is still growing, so unfortunately that number is only going to grow higher. And we know one of the real complications in battling this fire has been the crazy amount of high winds that we've had in New Mexico. Now, we're all used to windy springs here in New Mexico, but this year has been something else. And so we wanted to find out what's going on with the weather patterns to create these crazy winds. Is it connected to climate change? Spoiler alert there, yes, yes it is, according to the scientists, and how that impacts prediction, predictions and uh, meteorological outlooks moving forward, as well as efforts to battle these firefighters. And I want to point out here, we have been trying for several weeks now to talk to somebody with the Forest Service about prescribed fires, as we know that the Hermit's Peak Fire started out as a prescribed fire that then grew out of control again, leading to the largest wildfire in state history. Uh, Prescribed burns are supposed to be helpful in terms of managing our forests. We know as fire season gets longer, starts earlier, that this is creating a whole bunch of problems. We would love to talk to the Forest Service about the decision-making process, what goes into all of that, how they're going to have to adjust that with our our changing climate here in New Mexico. Unfortunately, they have told us several times now that that will have to wait. We understand that they are in the middle of still trying to deal with these fires, but we know that lots of people have questions and want answers, not only with what happened with that particular prescribed burn, but just the process in general. We will keep efforting that, keep working on that, bring that to you as soon as we possibly can. But back to the windy weather conditions, our land correspondent Laura Paskus recently caught up on Facebook Live with meteorologist Scott Overpeck to discuss the windy weather and what that portends for what is already a crazy fire season in New Mexico. Scott Overpeck, thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me, Laura. I'm glad glad to be here. So we all know spring in New Mexico is windy, but April and now into May, are these winds as unusual as they seem to me right now? Well, one thing is for sure is that the winds have been noticeably higher. 
It's not unusual for April and May because those are our windiest times of the year, but we've issued uh, several more high wind warnings and wind advisories, uh, notifying people that, yes, we're going to have some high winds on those days. We've hit, issued a lot more of those uh, within April and May than we have for quite some time, probably going back to uh, 2011. So it's certainly been a, a windy year so far. So we'll get to kind of this past weekend's conditions, but I wanted to look back to April a little bit. April 22nd, April 29th, those felt like really notable days. Do those show up in the data too, or is it just me remembering what those days were like? No, those, those showed up in, in the data as well. There were several areas that had wind gusts up to 60, 70 miles per hour, and that certainly was uh, what was a big driver for a lot of the wildfires that we have and, and causing a lot of spread. So certainly not your imagination. Certainly those were some of our windier days in April, and uh, we tried to get the warnings out for people and, and let them know that, that it'd be prepared for, for the wind on those days because those were certainly big, big days for those, uh, those times. So at the risk of asking you to kind of bring me back to like high school physics class or something like that, why, what's causing these winds? What's going on? Well, the biggest thing is that we get storm systems to move across the southern Rockies. And this isn't any different from what we get in the winter, but in the winter we usually have a little bit more moisture, we get snowfall, we get those kinds of, of impacts. But in the spring, we get these west and southwest winds, they tend to be drier, uh, and it's due to, to the jet stream with these systems, it's pretty strong. And uh, that uh, really is kind of the big driver for these kinds of wind events, is that we'll get these storm systems. And fortunately, they've been a little bit slower moving, so the last a couple days, we've had recently several days in a row with strong winds, and it's just a matter of how quickly these systems move across the Rockies that really determines uh, how long we're going to have these winds. So taking us back to last week, kind of the week before Mother's Day, the National Weather Service was all over these warnings. The governor was talking about them. Firefighters were certainly watching them. Can you describe what you knew was coming, what happened, and, and why? Certainly, I think the biggest thing is that we knew that we could see that there was a, a big storm system, a trough that was developing up in the big basin, or Great Basin, and then down towards the Four Corners. We knew that this would put the jet stream pretty well over our, our you know, neck of the woods, over New Mexico. And so that was one of those features that we could really kind of pinpoint several days in advance. And not only that, like I mentioned before, it was going to be kind of slow moving. And so we're still kind of under that jet stream even now. And that's why we decided to really kind of push the envelope and say, you know, this is not your ordinary system. It's going to be a little bit slower moving. That means we're going to have several days where we could have strong and high winds. And that's kind of what bared out over the weekend, uh, even yesterday. So that's kind of the reasoning why, you know, we could see this in the data, we could forecast, we'd get the word out. And it was a really big help to have everybody working together, you know, not just uh, the National Weather Service, but like you said, the governor and other uh, agencies just, you know, having that same message and letting people know that, you know, this is something that we need to really be prepared for and especially in those wildfire areas. Yeah, so can you talk a little bit about how you, you know, 
all of us, we check our phones, watch the news, whatever. Um, what kinds of forecasts are you maybe preparing or talking with firefighters about? How is maybe that different from what we're looking for on the ground? So from our forecast office, we also have meteorologists that are trained for incidents. We call them incident meteorologists. We actually have one that is dispatched onto the uh, Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire. And so our office along with them and there's other I IMETs, we call them IMETs, uh, dispatched out at the other fire. So we're all working together and what we do is we provide them a little bit more details specifically for that fire. And so it's a little bit more higher resolution in that it's the hour by hour winds and relative humidity, temperatures, those kinds of things. Uh, working with them uh, to coordinate any of the red flag warnings, which are warnings for these fire weather conditions. And so they're able to work with the incident command on those fires, provide them with the information so they can keep their firefighters safe. And if there are any air operations, uh, you know, we get airplanes and helicopters that are trying to help contain the fires, we can provide them with uh, support to so make sure they're safe flying. And uh, in these high winds, that's, that's really challenging to do. So that's kind of the process that we have is that our office is working with them to really coordinate those high detailed forecasts that uh, are really specific for the fires and their, their purposes for safety. Yeah, I can't imagine when I'm just standing out there in the wind, um, you know, trying to take pictures or whatever and feeling like I'm getting blown around. I can't imagine what it's like to be one of these firefighters on the ground or, you know, you see the, the super scoopers coming in, um, the retardant, like all of these planes trying to get an idea of what's happening and just watching the conditions that they're working in. It's just remarkable. Um, you mentioned when we were talking earlier, three different statements, a fire weather watch, a red flag warning, and then a fire warning. Can you lay out what those three mean? Okay, well, first I'm, I wanna start with, you know, what are fire weather conditions? I mean, that's probably something that not everybody's really familiar with. And it kind of boils down to about three or four different things. So we've talked about the winds, high winds. Usually you look for winds about 25, 30 mile per hour or higher. And then relative humidity, so in the afternoon, uh, temperature heats up, we don't have, we have dry air, so that relative humidity gets below 10%. And usually we try to have that cut off around 15%. So anything under 15% is kind of a condition that we're really concerned about. And then this is the other thing, is uh, the vegetation, or what we call fuel. So when you think of fuel, you think of, you know, something like gasoline or something that you're putting in, in your vehicle or your, lawnmower or something like that to keep it keep that motor going well that's that's really kind of what it is for wildfires is uh, the vegetation so drought conditions how dry are those trees how dry is the vegetation how receptive are they to be uh, be ignited with with fire so when we put all that together that's what we call critical fire weather conditions and that's where these watches and warnings come in so we have a fire weather watch that's usually issued about 48 to 72 hours in advance of when we think we'll get those fire weather conditions or those critical conditions. The red flag warning is usually 24 hours in advance. And then there's a third one that's called a fire warning and we reserve that as a way to work with our county officials, city officials, 
if there's any active fires that are threatening people, threatening structures. And so that alerts on your phone, alerts uh, on the weather radio, and has the evacuation information and that kind of thing. And that's, that's the fire warning there. So it's a little bit different from what we use to uh, communicate the weather conditions that are uh, really favorable for fire growth and for fires to get out of control. So we've seen how the winds are fueling the wildfires. Um, also, I'm thinking of things like dust storms. I mean, I've certainly seen our share of dust storms even on the highway between Albuquerque and Santa Fe. Are there other impacts that, that you see, especially like looking forward into the spring, that these winds kind of exacerbate? Well, you certainly hit on the dust. I mean, that, that's going to be an ongoing issue and, and certainly a, a symptom of our drought conditions and, and a result of that. You know, there are certain areas that we can see these dust plumes start. Um, some are kind of in that uh, region out to the west near Gallup and get these west and southwest winds and push them towards uh, our northern mountains and, and towards uh, Farmington and, and the Four Corners. Uh, the other thing is the smoke. We, we still have to deal with this wildfire smoke, and so the winds will certainly take that smoke. And, and uh, you know, last couple of days, these winds have been strong enough that we see the smoke plumes from the Hermit's Peak fire go all the way up towards uh, Kansas and Nebraska. So that's another thing that we have to keep in mind. And that you know, wind's going to carry those that smoke away. At night, when the winds die down a little bit, it stays closer into New Mexico, but still, still that health hazard. So those are probably the two main things that we're just going to have to really, other things that we're going to have to deal with uh, along with, with the fire conditions. So every day I kind of, you know, check the weather like everybody else and see it's going to be another windy day. And I keep thinking, well, maybe this will be the last one. Like, are we just looking at continued on and off windy conditions through the spring this year? Well, I think it's going to be depending on how, how these storm systems move across uh, the, the southern Rockies. So we're kind of in that period now. It does, you know, in the forecast, we are, it does look like winds will drop off some toward the weekend. But then there even if we look way out, you know, beyond seven, eight, you know, ten days out, it's about as far as our forecast models will go. It does look like next week we might see the winds come back a little bit stronger. So we're just going to have to take it as it comes, unfortunately. So, you know, we talk on our show a lot about climate change, and there are certainly certain things like rising temperatures and changes in snowpack that we can point toward climate change and, and warming. Are these wind patterns, is, does this have anything to do with warming and climate change, or is this something separate? I think where climate change, like you mentioned, really has its impact is, you know, we're looking at the drought conditions, we're looking at these drier below normal precipitation conditions and there's some tie with that to even the El Nino, La Nina pattern that we're in. We're currently in La Nina. And so how does climate change really affect those patterns? And then that's going to impact what our weather pattern looks like for each spring. So it's kind of trickles all the way down, but there, there is going to be some influence on where and how these storm systems develop based on that. Getting down to the nitty-gritty details, can we really nail that down? Not exactly, but you definitely know that there's, there's those connections and there are going to be uh, some impacts in influencing what we get on a day-to-day -day weather based off that. It's just hard to really pinpoint exactly 
which days, you know, okay, was this really within the realms of what we typically see? Is this out of the ordinary? Uh, you know, this recent pattern certainly could be more tied to La Nina, but then how is climate change affecting La Nina? And those are questions that we have to ask and get some answers for. So I already know this isn't a fair question to ask because we're talking about five and 10 day forecasts, but is this pattern that we're seeing this year, is this, is this, are we gonna look back on this year and be like, whew, that was an outlier, that was a really rotten year, or will we look back on this year and be like, that was the start <laughs> of a change that we're gonna start seeing on a regular basis in the spring? I think we're kind of looking at this as, uh, you know, averaging out the extremes. This could potentially be one of those years that's gonna stick out from more of the others. Uh, how frequently are they gonna be? That's, that's an unknown, we, we really just don't know. Is this going to be a start of a new trend? Uh, you know, the atmosphere likes to balance things out, climate likes to balance things out. And so certainly we're looking at a, a you know, really dry year and uh, certainly see that bear out in, in, the, in the climate data. So we'll just have to see a little bit more, get a little bit more information on how this really falls out and can we see if this is a new trend and moving forward. Yeah. So lastly, I just want to, when people get those alerts, people see, you know, what are some of the things that you all would like us to do when we see these alerts and warnings? So I think the main thing is when you see a warning for like red flag conditions, that's basically saying, no, 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 don't do anything with a flame. Don't do anything that causes a spark. Uh, I know that people want to get work done on their property, want to, uh, you know, take care of any, any shrubs around and those kinds of things, uh, any kind of outdoor welding, anything like that's just not really a good idea. Uh, if you're out camping, really use extra special care to make sure your campfires are contained and, and put out and, uh, you know, follow the regulations from, from the state parks and national parks and follow what, what they, they suggest you do. Um, even, even trucks stopping on the side of the road, uh, you wouldn't think of hot brakes being something that could do it, but I mean, it's that kind of thing that could really even simply just set off a brush fire. So it just doesn't take much in these conditions to get something going. And then lastly, if you're in, in one of these areas dealing with the wildfires in, in, in close proximity, really follow the evacuation orders, have a go kit, have something ready to go so that uh, you can evacuate at that, that moment's notice. Yeah, one of the things that I feel like I never fully understood until this fire season was that that evacuation order has so much to do with your exit route. I think sometimes I, I in the past had thought it had to do with, oh, the, the fire's coming this way and I, oh, I see it's over there. I don't need to think about it yet. But really those evacuation routes are just critically. Important. Yeah, and I think that's kind of something that people really don't quite get is that, you know, the fire may not be affecting their property right, property right away, but their their escape route could be very well cut off. And that's that's what what's really important is that you've got to have a way to get out. Yeah, scary stuff this year. Thank you so much for coming on the show and for helping us understand what the heck's going on. Well, I appreciate being on. Thank you. Thanks. We're going to stick with fires and the wildfires raging across New Mexico. We now have a new one that broke out on Friday in the Gila, uh, and it is already up over 50,000 acres. 
just an unrelenting fire season already when we normally would be looking for a month or so out from now really being dangerous. We are in the thick of it, and we've got a long, long way to go. We want to turn now to our line opinion panel from our most recent show and get their thoughts on all aspects of this. The emergency declaration from the governor, which means money coming to New Mexico faster. That, again, is in part because of the fact that this was caused, at least the Hermit's Peak, by a prescribed burn and government officials, um, as well as we know stories of people who are not evacuating in a timely manner and how important that is. And we'll continue to be talking about these issues for sure. want to let you know our line panel, most recent line panel, is Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group PR, also Jessica Onsuras, News Director at the Carlsbad Current Argus, and friend of the show, Kathy McGill, of a whole bunch of different organizations, including New Mexico Black Voters Collaborative and the Black Leadership Council. So let's dive right into that conversation. I do want to make a note as well that our host, Gene Grant, is under the weather right now. So it was me, the voice that you'll hear, again, Kevin McDonald, executive producer, who is uh, leading that discussion with our line opinion panelists this week. Welcome back to our opinion panelists. We're going to stick to that topic we just heard about, these crazy high winds and the wildfires they're fueling. The largest fire burning in the country right now is the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire. Hermit's Peak started as a prescribed burn before it grew out of control. And during a briefing on the wildfires this week, Governor Michelle Luan Grisham said New Mexicans don't have to worry about that happening again and that the state forester, Homeland Security, other state and federal officials will all have a conversation about how and when these burns are, reform are performed. But of course, the damage is already done. The governor says she understands people's anger and that she's upset too, calling this situation negligent. Now she's looking for accountability and says it's likely Congress and other federal partners will accept that there is significant federal responsibility, adding, if anyone wants a fight over it, they'll get one. So let's start with you, Kathy. I, I know it's hard right now in the middle of fighting them, but this issue of accountability and how we get at that, how, what's your take on how we should get at that? Oh, I love accountability. Let's <laughs> all use it in all things all the time. Um, and I would say that everyone does need to accept accountability for this controlled burn and the fact that it got way out of hand. Um, I know that um, you know people are have accepted some responsibility, but I, I do think that we may be getting the the right answer to the wrong question. So I think maybe the accountability needs to be around uh, discussing whether or not this is climate change, uh, or you know it's a uh, a function of of this controlled burn getting out of hand and there being some malfeasance involved. Uh, so I think we need to talk about. Uh, climate change and and the fact that that perhaps this was no surprise and that it was a predictable almost certain future that this was going to happen at some point because we're talking about um, accountability for this particular issue but there's a larger issue that needs to be discussed yeah and and we've talked to uh, very recently lots of folks who who talk about how um, that what worked in the past isn't going to now because again winds the heat the dryness it was all earlier none of us can really remember a time of that serious of a wildfire 
in April, right? And here we are in May. We haven't even really hit the traditional wildfire season, and um, it's unlike anything we've ever seen. So, Tom, for you again, too, is it good for the governor to sort of lay the groundwork to lead the charge down the road about finding out what we do to adjust and to uh, address that accountability question? Oh, absolutely. You know, she she's the best person to represent the state's interest uh, to the federal government at this point. And, uh, you know, the overall state response through Department of Homeland uh, Security has really been quite impressive as far as the outreach and coordination amongst all the different communities who, you know, for the most part, there might just be a local fire department or a county fire department. Uh, and uh, DHS has done a really good job. And uh, I think that the governor can really take that uh, coordinated state effort uh, to uh, to basically, uh, you know, show Washington how they need to kind of come up and help New Mexico uh, get through this time. And part of that last week, the governor, of course, announced her request for a federal emergency declaration. And unlike most of those federal requests, it was signed and approved by the president within two days. And now the state is set to receive federal emergency funds while the emergency is still ongoing. Jessica, how important is that for a state like ours where people are struggling? We know that um, we are taxing our water systems even more to fight the fires and many water systems, uh, people are being told they can't drink the water because of, of the ash and things uh, that are getting into their system. So that money is really crucial here, isn't it? Yeah, um, fighting fires is expensive on all fronts. You're talking about the cost for personnel. You're talking about the, co the cost for management, about the cost for water. And it's especially when you've got such a, ongoing, a long period ongoing fire. Um, it was exceptional to see that signed as quickly as it was, but I think that it hasn't escaped anyone, um, local, regional, state, federal level, how big of a disaster this actually is and how much of an impact it has actually had on um, New Mexico residents. And now if we could just get the national media once again to realize that A, we are not Arizona, and B, we are in the United States, we'd really be doing something, right? A lot of examples of that of late. Um, we did talk about the extraordinarily difficult conditions facing wildland firefighters. Laura Paskus with Arland has done a lot on that, including their compensation, just $15 an hour in most cases. Well, the U.S. House passed a bipartisan bill to ensure federal firefighters receive the same job-related disability and retirement benefits as state, county, municipal firefighters. Tom, how important is that when you're talking about, what, 1,400, 1,500 people here trying to, to fend off all these flames in all these locations? Yeah, uh, so if the question is about increasing the amount of funding that we pay firefighters, then I would say that, yes, you know, we definitely need to take a look at that. You know, of course, the economy right now, it's kind of interesting how, you know, it's a $15 an hour job uh, amidst this time of inflation. <laughs> and so, you know, I think that if, uh, but of course, you know, the work that firefighters and other public servants do uh, in life-saving situations, you know, really they, those are services you can't really put a price tag on. But, you know, really getting, uh, you know, firefighters and supporting them in different ways, to really help save New Mexico communities, uh, you know, hopefully there'll be a little extra incentive if that's possible uh, for all of their effort. 
Yeah, and circling back to my earlier point, obviously folks can do two things at once, but Kathy, do you think that uh, a lot of these calls for accountability and the effort there might be better used to help boost up these firefighters who have seasonal work and when it's not fire season, they're not eligible for health care benefits, the $15 an hour. Uh, I, this is something that is not just an issue in New Mexico, right? We see it throughout the, the Southwest. And, and how do we lead that charge in the midst of all this too? Um, I, I think that you're right, that we, we don't just work on one thing if we're gonna approach this, this issue holistically. Um, in some of the work that I've done with New Mexico counties, um, I became aware of the fact that that many counties in our 33 don't have a professional fire service. They're working with volunteer firefighters, so they're not getting paid anything. And so it is definitely something that we need to address. And obviously, $15 is minimum wage for um, a really dangerous hazardous job that requires some expertise. And so it's something I think we can and should address and um, that the, the public should, should demand it. Let's move on to evacuations now, something a lot of people are struggling and dealing with. And during her briefing earlier this week, the governor stressed the importance of New Mexico's ready, set, go policy for people near these fires, saying she fears too many New Mexicans aren't following the best practices. Is this a communication thing? She also made a point of mentioning that there haven't been any known cases of looting uh, for people who may not want to leave their house because they're afraid things will get stolen. Um, but this puts firefighters in danger. It can just exacerbate an already terrible situation. Is there anything more we could be doing to try to reinforce people getting out when experts say it's time to get out? Uh, let's go to you, Jessica, sorry. Oh, sure. Um, so I, I think you have to realize that we are talking about more than just a danger to yourself. People love their homes. They live there for a reason. They're emotionally connected to them. They're emotionally connected to their community. So it's always going to be difficult to convince them, no matter the danger to themselves, to just abandon that and hope for the best, which is basically what we're telling those now affected by the um, hermits in Cav Canyon fire is, you know, you've got to get out. Um, and leave everything behind except the ne necessary items. Um, what we saw in Rio Doso during the McBride fire was a lot of people choosing to stay and to do what they could to save their homes, um, regardless of how well it was communicated that ready, set, go. Um, when they were given the go, they just refused. And um, part of it was fear of, of looting. Some of it was, was um, you know, they wanted to lend a hand. They wanted to be able to participate in, in saving their homes and saving their community. Um, I think when it comes to the question of communication, we are dealing with fires that are burning in rural areas where it's always been difficult to get out um, any type of public service announcement. Um, and we're seeing that in a lot more, um, in, especially in um, Northern New Mexico. Um, and for those of, who haven't been involved in coverage of a fire, who haven't been in a fire, I think it's difficult for them to realize how much um, you lose, how many services you actually lose during a fire. You know, you're not getting water, as you mentioned. Um, you are isolated, you're cut off. There's sometimes no electricity. Um, sometimes you don't even have a radio in the house. Um, so we talk a lot about being ready, set, go now when we should be talking about 
preparing communities in the line of fire, excuse the pun, um, way ahead of time. Absolutely. And, and again, a quick reminder that as we've learned, a lot of the evacuation orders uh, don't even so much have to do in that moment with the fire moving towards, but it's the escape routes out, the routes you need to get out. So uh, really important to heed all of that. Thanks again to our panel. And in less than 10 minutes, we'll take up one final discussion. Virgin Galactic's recent announcement that commercial space flights won't happen as soon as they planned. So much talk about the wildfires, so much sad, sad news across the state. Of course, our hearts and thoughts go out to everyone who was lost and sacrificed during this already crazy fire season. We also talk a lot on the show and through our Arland environmental series about climate change, which can also uh, just carry a heavy toll on people and can feel super helpless at times. And we know we have felt that way internally a whole lot lately. And so we set out to search. Uh, it was a recent story we actually did on Conservation Carnival, which is a theater troupe that teaches about conservation in the Bosque. And one of the creators of that program uh, talked about her own climate anxiety. And so that really got us thinking about that term, not one that I had seen coined yet, but definitely have felt that, as many of you, I'm sure, have as well. And we tracked down an author. Her name is Sarah Jaquette, and she wrote a book called A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, How to Keep Your Cool on a Warming Planet. And so we wanted to talk with her about what she has learned, what exactly climate anxiety is, and some coping mechanisms, which we all could definitely, definitely use. And we did not have time for that full interview in the show, but want to bring it to you in its entirety here, some really valuable information. And if you have things that you have found in your own life to help you not feel overwhelmed or cause you to shut down when it comes to the wildfires and other climate change issues, we would love to hear those as well. You can drop us a line here on the podcast, or you can always reach out to us on any of our social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, Wherever you are, we are as well, and we want to hear from you. But here now, author Sarah Jaquette and our land correspondent, Laura Paskus. Professor Ray, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So um, even people who aren't being evacuated for a fire or facing water shortages this year, um, we all have emotional responses to what's happening in the world right now. What is clim climate anxiety that you write about in your book? Yeah, so there's people who are experiencing immediate climate or environmental traumas, like sea level rise or a natural disaster, various kinds of immediate things. And, and arguably, many scientists would say something like COVID is an immediate climate disaster too, that we're all experiencing some more intimately than others. But that's one set of climate anxieties, forms of sort of immediate distress, immediate threat to life, livelihood and life. Um, but another kind of climate anxiety that also sort of took me by surprise a little bit when I first discovered it 
is this sort of anticipatory anxiety about what could be happening in the future. And this comes from all of the, the forecasts coming from scientists like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC reports that come out every couple of years and various different models coming out from scientists and, and actually reportage of the great, the sixth great extinction as Elizabeth Colbert calls it. So there's a sense of um, what's life gonna be like in the next 15, 20, 50 years, that's gonna be in my lifetime. Many young people in particular are thinking about this. Uh, will the planet be inhabitable? Will we have food? Will the ecosystem services that, that the entire economic system we live on, you know, be, you know, functioning. Uh, and the thought of those things all falling apart creates climate anxiety, uh, the sense of, you know, the way the life life as we know it, um, the conditions for health and thriving and for eating and, and breathing and drinking fresh water and having our houses, you know, not fall apart or not burn down. That kind of uh, uncertainty, um, what Glenn Albrecht calls global dread, is really what climate anxiety is. The APA defines eco-anxiety as a chronic fear of environmental doom, but I would say climate anxiety is more specific around the ways that people are responding to news around what's happening with climate change particularly. Yeah, and you write about the climate generation, and I'm curious, how how is this climate generation different from someone like me, say, who was in college in the 90s? Yeah, so I was in college in the 90s too, so <laughs> that's close to home for me. Um, so yeah, the climate generation is the largest generation. If we think about it in the U.S. context in particular, although we can talk about a more international context if you'd like, but in the U.S. context in particular, the climate generation is the largest generation that the U.S. has ever seen. They're going to be the least economically well off. They'll be the first generation to be less well off than their parents' generation. They're saddled with an extraordinary amount of student debt, um, most of them. They also are more ethnically diverse than any other generation that the U.S. has ever seen. And there are a couple other qualities about this generation that are particularly unique. Uh, recent data, especially in the last year, has shown that this generation also experiences climate anxiety and emotions related to fears about the future of the planet um, more than other generations. And so there's a sense of the the actions of previous generations are going to come to roost on this generation. And this generation is going to be the one who gets to experience the worst of that. Uh, so there's an awareness of that. And that that awareness, that concern is um, distributes across race and class in pretty interesting ways in the US. Uh, if you are a young woman of color, you're more likely to experience climate anxiety uh, than you are if you're a white male uh, young person. So there's different, and of course, politics matters here too. So the demographics of climate anxiety are, are particularly interesting as well. So I think there's this tendency still for older generations to look at this, this sort of climate generation, younger generations as like coddled or apathetic. And, and you as a professor who's around these people all the time, you have a very different take that you write about in your book. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think there was there are times there have been times when I have been tempted to think the same thing. <laughs> um, you know, I remember having an experience with my students about five or six years ago where I, I walked them through a visualization exercise where I asked them to imagine a future. They were living in the future, cast forward a few years, imagine everything that you've worked for coming to pass, everything that you and your community desires manifested, all the justice and all the you know environment is utopic, everything's great. Um, what are you being thanked for and, and all that kind of thing. And, and my students 
couldn't even imagine a future that they would desire. And I realized that they did, if they didn't have the imagination for what that would even look like, what would be the ideal, then how are they ever going to start working on it? You know, you have to backward design your goals. I mean, anybody knows that. <laughs> you have to know what you want so you know where to start. Um, and this was a real failure on, on their imagination side. And I at first I thought it was because they had been sort of... Um, you know, unable to gr deal with difficulty, you know, that there was a sort of maybe a, a snowflakiness about them, right? This sort of coddled of coddling of the American mind that you just mentioned. But then I actually realized as I started to tap into more of a space of compassion and knowing these students, I realized that this was in fact more of a matter of, of really being let down by, uh, by previous generations and being handed a problem that is unsolvable. Uh, and, and learning as we all want them to learn about climate change, right? Everybody is starting to learn about climate change, even in the K through 12 system now. And they were coming into college already knowing that things were really bad. And it is, oh, it is simply a, a sign of our engagement with what's happening in the world that we might feel some um, dread and uncertainty and trepidation about what's happening in the future. And so this lack of imagination just seemed to be an, the, the natural response to how bad the news is. And I, I really felt a deep heartbreak for them. Yeah, I, it, also in your book, which is great and I loved it and I appreciated it, um, you write about existential grief and how the root of it is the fear of loss or the terror of loneliness. And you write that there are far more effective ways to address our existential grief than extinguishing ourselves under the weight of it all. What are some of those ways? Oh, there. so many times I think the, the automatic knee-jerk reaction to climate grief and to climate anxiety is action, right? Okay, let's let's transform our anxiety into action, and I think that that's really great. And I and I don't I don't reject that. I think that's an important thing. We really need a lot of action. <laughs> but unfortunately, if people do not have the existential capacity for action because they're burned out, they're despairing, they're apathetic, they think that what they're going to do doesn't matter, which is the main thing. Um, the problem is too big and they're too small, that kind of thing. If they believe that, they're, they're not even likely, it turns out psychologists show this really interesting um, experiment, psychologists have done that, I researched for the book, that people are less likely to even try to solve the problem if they don't think that, that it can ever be solved, that they can make no difference to it. And so that is where the kind of core of the problem lies in my mind, not so much in what actions do we need to do, they don't even can't even get to action, then no matter no matter how you lay out the list of great things to do, they're not going to do it. They can't even come to class. You know? yeah. <laughs> so depressed. So there was a sense to me that there was something beneath even those actions that had to happen. And then when I started to do a lot of the research on it, really a lot of that is existential. That's existential work that that wisdom traditions, spiritual traditions, um, different types of community action or, or social movements have long had some knowledge about and been able to do, but that the climate movement so far hadn't really done a lot of that reckoning. And uh, I tried to turn some of the attention in the book to some of that interior work of reminding of ourselves, of our connection to each other, our connection to the more than human world. And the, it's, the, um, it's the denial of those connections that's at the root of many of our problems. And so the repair has to happen at that kind of existential level, as much as all of these other external actions also. But they're, they're interconnected. You can't really 
you know, embolden a movement to take on the challenges as we need to without uh, that kind of interior resilience and, and energy. Yeah, along those lines, you, you write about how seeing ourselves as part of a collective um, and acting collectively versus trying to do things individually is so important. And it made me think of like Joanna Mesa, Macy, and she talks about group action and group work. Um, what are the benefits of this collective action, this group work, this relationship building? You know, that's a, that's a really great question. There's many facets to that. Um, so some people say that at the root the root cause of our, our social crises are the same as the root cause of the climate change crisis, which is disconnection, lack of community. And, and many people, if you look at Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone and you look at the sort of crisis of civil society, the crisis of community that's been sort of almost engineered by the ways that we've designed, you know, not just architecture and cities and, and uh, our automobiles and highways, but also um, we've you sort of create a culture of individualism in American society that you're on your own and and go off and set free yourself free from all of the fetters of your family and and others and there's a real fetish of that in American culture and there's a lot of benefits to that and I'm not denying entirely that there's some value to that um, but it has had the uh, unfortunate effect of making us think that we are alone in our action for the planet so that, that that's one way that it makes us it disempowers us it help it it helps us not able to see, makes us not able to see the ways that we, our actions are in concert already with a huge community of people. What Paul Hawking calls the blessed unrest or some groundswell. Rebecca Solnit beautifully writes about this. And also it makes us not able to take a, take a break when we need to build, build our resources. Many people, young people in particular, feel like they need to sort of burn the midnight oil and, and not sleep in order to do the amount of work that's necessary because the problem is so urgent, right? This urgency of the problem this next 10 years matters so much we often hear makes people feel like okay i'll i'll just work my tail off until the problem is solved and then i'll be able to maybe relax there's no time for rest and um individualism come shows up also in activism too in a way that um, undermines our ability to keep engaged in these issues for the long term of our lives these, this, the problem is not going to be resolved in 10 years it's going to be on, going on for the rest of our lives and so seeing ourselves in the collective is partly a, a sort of critical thinking tool to keep us energized, right? Like, let's focus on the fact that we are amplified in all these ways. I do a network mapping exercise with my students sometimes where I help them see all the things that support them and that they support and ask them how can they enhance those supports. And also there's some really interesting neuroscience about this, that there's sort of uh, the mirror neurons that happens, the things that happens hormonally and chemically when we're actually in space with other people and when we're doing things with other people. And I find it really fascinating that there's things that happen, like if you did an MRI, if you could take a picture of people's brains when they're with people versus when they're on Zoom or when they're on Zoom when they're versus when they're alone, just the sheer act of being with people, doing something collectively, enhances all of the good feels that we might need to have chemically in our body. So there's some, some really cool stuff that happens there, just even just the neuroscience of it is really important. So you mentioned earlier too, like these issues are so big, they seem so vast, and they are, that whether it's climate change or the social justice aspects of climate change. Um, and even just here in our own state, especially right now, it just seems like the issues are so big and there's so much that needs to be done. 
and then you kind of have social media where you're being assaulted all the time by um, you know taking action on this or being outraged about that I'm, I'm interested in what advice you might have on how to navigate all these front lines that everyone's dealing with all the time yeah that's a great question because that's something i battle every day myself so i'm really sympathetic and i think this is where uh wisdom is really really helpful wisdom of discernment is really helpful and something that the earlier we can teach that in our kids the better college students for sure but even earlier than college students so if we if we are aware we just understand that most media gravitates towards negative information this is called the negativity bias in media but we also that negativity bias is only merely responding because we live in capitalism responding to the negativity biases that are in our own brains right we have this reptilian residual brain thing that focuses on the next threat that's on the horizon and so we tend to pay attention to the negative information the scariest of news the most outraged um, information and we we know this if we just do a simple study of the algorithms around uh, social media that negative emotions like outrage or i should say uncomfortable emotions huge um you know big big emotive words are the ones that get distributed the most and, and pass around get the most eyeballs as they call it in social media and so the negativity bias in ourselves perpetuates the negativity bias in the news media it becomes this vicious cycle and so what kind of story do we live in we live in what joanna macy calls the great unraveling right where everything is unraveling you know there's some of the coming anarchy as robert kaplan put it in the 80s right so there's a sort of the world is descending into apocalypse if we look if we only took the media that we consume on on a daily basis as evidence of truth that would be the story we lived in but this in fact creates a self-fulfilling prophecy in most people which is that the world is so terrible there's nothing i can do to stop it it's inevitable so i might as well just put my head in the sand and carry on business as usual so we don't even we won't even begin to tackle the problem if we live in that story and simply put in if we, the planet has any hope at all if any of these you know situations have any hope at all we we have to give we have to show up as much energy for it as possible and the most energy the, the way to do that is to come from a place of living in a very different story we must simply choose to co to consume and seek out and distribute stories of solutions of people who are doing this so that we'll become more aware of all those people out there doing it more aware of the collectivity more aware of how many solutions are already happening success stories those are the kinds of things that actually bring people back for more and make people want to keep being involved and and again this is neuroscience i mean simply the hormones and the chemicals around positive news keeps us coming back for more like dopamine right so there's and also those stories model how to do it so if we learn how to do it you know where you are the story you just told me before we started filming of of the mesa behind you what what's happening there the more you can distribute those kinds of solution stories the more people think oh that's happening right in my backyard i can get involved with them or maybe i can model that in my community where i'm at people think that the only way to solve all the problems we have is that by tomorrow we need to get rid of capitalism or whatever it is right like we need to have all the land back by tomorrow and everything feels impossible this all feels like too big of a task but when we see the stories of what's happening around the corner what's happening in our community we see it modeled 
when we see all the adults in the room, if we're younger, taking care of something right here, uh, that can scale out, that just perpetuates the cycle. And so if we live in a story of what Joanna Macy calls a great turning, where everybody's doing this work, we're much more likely to show up to do the work. So it becomes that kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I like what you write about um, slow hope um, and how there's always this, yeah, this emphasis on urgency and action and that, that constant urgency also does like stresses you out, but also can make people not be as inclusive. Or you write about um, you can you know sacrifice your allies to get to a certain outcome. What are the benefits of this slow hope in a world where everything seems to be moving so fast all the time? Well, for that very reason, the speed at which the world is moving is <laughs> is part of the problem, right? That's where the the disconnection happens when we when we are moving too fast and we have that sense of urgency. We're much less likely to be compassionate towards each other. We're much less likely to interpret the behavior we see on the media that we're watching or the people that we're interacting with from a space of understanding or awareness of what the causes and conditions that make people do what they do. We're much less likely to want to cooperate with people or collaborate with people. Speed makes interconnection really inconvenient and much less respect for the earth, right? Like I, I, I'm too busy. I don't want to hang my laundry up on the clothesline, you know, that just for a small example. And it has the effect of the urgency. The urgency mode is sort of has always long been a political tool to get people to surrender their rights or to give up, you know, to look the other way at unethical behavior, you know. So there's there's a real sense of when we when we're when we're in a state of urgency, when we feel things are urgent, we tend to um, uh, you know, not do things like the slow deliberative processes that are required to make sure all voices are included in a conversation about solutions. Or we tend to think that this is the most urgent thing we've ever had and nothing ever before was as urgent as this, when in fact, lots of people have lived un under unlivable conditions in lots of parts, places of the planet and historically and even now. And so this isn't maybe perhaps the most urgent thing for them, right? So there's, there's, um, there's a real politics to the to urgency that that we should be suspicious of, not because it's you know nefarious and for any particular reason, but because there's there it's a rhetorical strategy to get people to act, and it may it may make us act in ways that are not very wise. So you, um, I like this book. You kind of you lay out lots of um, background information and. But at the end of each chapter, there's like a checklist. And there's also some like exercises in the book that you also do with your students. And you write about this one exercise in particular that you did with your students. And it, it reminded me, I did something similar in 2016, in the fall of 2016, um, you know, knowing that there were gonna be a, a steady, a steady stream of important issues that would need to be covered. And so at that time, like I wrote out a very specific list for myself about what I can do and what I, what my skills are and, and what I need to focus on for the next four years. And it was really helpful and really guided me for those four years. I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about what this exercise is that you have students do and how it might be helpful for our viewers to do as well? This exercise, I think you're talking about the eco manifesto. Um, yes. So 
when we have that information coming at us from all sides, that 24-7 access to news cycles, information from all corners of the globe, all the terrible things that are happening, it makes it very difficult to prioritize and sort through what, where we want to devote our attention, what is the most urgent things to triage all of that. And that creates this overwhelm, the urgency and the, the quantity of it and the urgency of it all, which of course the media wants to make sure we feel, actually has this deadening effect, right? That's, it has this kind of like, oh, I'm overwhelmed. I'm sort of in a state of immobilization because of the intensity of it all. And we often might feel like just the witnessing of it, you know, is enough to participate. But really, in fact, what needs to happen is that most people need to focus in on one particular issue that is really a, a combination of their passion, their skills, their interests, and where they think is going to they can have an effect and an impact. And sometimes that can be at a very, very intimate scale, close to just yourself, right? Many of us don't have access to leverage, leverage points of power or institutional change, but we need to build that out. And so where can we, where do we start? Where do we, where do we have control? Where do we have an ability to make an impact? And I have an exercise called the spheres of influence activity that's in the book too, um, that I got from dear friend, Abby Reyes, where you can sort of map out where your spheres of influence and where you can even begin to start. But this allows us, to, as we as we sort of you know visualize, going back to that visualization activity, if we think about where we're trying to go, and what our particular passions and skills are, we can figure out what the next step is. And it's really a matter of just prioritizing what our what our big yes is, as opposed to all of the things that maybe other people find as their big yes, so we can say no. That again goes back to the collectivity thing. It allows us to say no to everything that's not in our, our most important priority. Um, and this is, the, the sense of overwhelm is really common, I think, in, in people these days. Um, and the ability to triage and just say yes to that, which is in our mission, our manifesto, allows other people to say yes to the things that we might have to say no to. That's something that I love. Adrian Marie Brown's book, Emergent Strategy, helped me think about my no is actually a yes for someone else and opens up the door for someone else. And so when we're all of a sudden, oh, yes, we're in a collectivity. We don't all have to do it all, you know. Well, thanks for saying yes to this interview. I really have appreciated this conversation. I really, really recommend your book to, to anybody who's thinking about these issues right now. So thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate talking to you. All right, that's it for this episode of New Mexico and Focus, the podcast. Again, I'm your host, Kevin McDonald. We'll be back. We're going to drop the next episode tomorrow. Again, we're a little off schedule this week due to some personal and professional situations, but we'll have a new one for you tomorrow. And so we hope you will join us then. And as we mentioned earlier, you can always keep up with the show on our social media channels. Whichever you're on, we're on as well, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. And we always love to hear from you. So until next time, thanks for listening and definitely stay safe, stay healthy. <laughs>